Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thanks so much for joining me. A special treat. I'm on the road today. I'm not in my studio. I am in the beautiful library and office of my friend Chris Becks out in eastern Indiana. He has my dream office. Uh, I walked in here and I gasped out of jealousy. He's got old library catalog cards and bookshelves. It's absolutely beautiful. Chris has been on the podcast in the past. Uh, You can go back and check out that episode. Uh, And I wanted to sit down with Chris today to talk about ideas and reaching back into not just the Western canon, but the great books of human history, why they're important. I think he has a very unique and different idea um, compared to maybe a lot of people that you might have had as professors in college. Uh, and I think part of that was based on how he was raised. We'll get into that. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for stopping out. Um, nice to visit with you again. And uh, yeah, it's any anytime I have an opportunity to talk about some of these ideas and uh, authors and how they influence us in our day-to-day lives and interacting with family and things like that, I'm always happy to do that. Yeah, so you were on last time talking about uh, Remnant Trust, which you're, you've uh, left. But Remnant Trust basically has 1,600 different books, original works, first editions of all of these great books of liberty and dignity that span human history, everything from you know the first Gutenberg Bible to all these different things. And these are books that for 25 years you helped purchase and handled and went out to schools and talked to students. And it was founded by your dad, Brian Becks who is an interesting character, and he's who I want to start with, because I don't know that many of my listeners might know who Brian Becks was, but I just finished a book by Sheila Seuss Kennedy called uh, Pickin' Fights with Thunderstorms about Brian and his history, and I find him to be fascinating. At one point, he had a newsletter. If you've watched the great Amazon Prime or Hulu show about um, Phyllis Schlafly and her big newsletter... uh, Back in the 50s and 60s, 70s, newsletters were really popular. You may have heard of Ron Paul's newsletters, either positively or negatively. Um, but your dad had a circulation of like 600,000, and he was steeped in libertarian thought and the wisdom of the ages and was very passionate and didn't just talk about current events, but he talked about classic ideas. Um, can you give us just a background sketch briefly of your dad and his work with the Brian Becks report that turned into the Remnant Trust. And uh, then we'll talk about your childhood because I bet it had to be fascinating. Uh, sh- sure. that's. Uh, I'm sure Dad will correct me on a variety of these things. But um, he was going to college um, when they were uh, you know, burning ROTC buildings and things like that. At IU, which I didn't know was like ground central for communism. The was, story was basically he was calling everyone a communist at IU and then he turned out to be right. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a good way to boil it down. Yeah, he was uh, he was at IU in Bloomington, um, got approached by the uh, the FBI to uh, to kind of like go and sit in on some of these meetings and things like that. And yes, I would say he's one of the first people to be saying, you know, yeah, there are professors that are advocating for this. They're having meetings and all that kind of thing. And that's really what kind of spawned and sparked him into his, um, I guess, over 50 years now. He's still he's still at it, hacking away on a typewriter. Does and the Brian Beck's report still exist? Uh, so the the Brian Beck's report as a as a not for profit is is still in existence and okay. still functioning. Um, he now does what I call a long form 
uh, letters. So okay. uh, much longer than uh, the newsletter he used to do. And he does about four of those a year right now. Okay. Um, but yeah, in the, in the late 60s, I want to say 66, maybe 65, um, he got started doing these things. And when he found out some of this information about what was going on, he, uh, he was trying to talk to different people. He met businessmen and uh, and things like that. Um, Sarkis Tarzan in uh, in Bloomington, who people, owned TV and and radio stations around Indiana. That's correct. Um, what I understand is uh, his company was the largest producer of television tuners hmm. in the world at that time. And uh, these people were supportive of what Brian was uh, was trying to say. They got him uh, radio time and eventually TV time. That became uh, The American Record, which was a TV show he did for about 20 years. I think the last one was maybe 1991. Um as he would say, these were during times when there weren't, uh, you know, cable television didn't really exist. Individuals still owned TV channels. You didn't really even have radio. I mean, somewhere in the late 80s that would, the Fairness Doctrine was broken, but you didn't really have conservative radio. Ronald Reagan did a radio address for a period of time. You had Paul Harvey, but, you know, you didn't really have talk radio. You didn't really have cable television. There wasn't a lot of... I don't know. Would you characterize Brian as right wing? Um, uh, Carefully, I would do that. Uh, I I might not do that to his face, but uh, (laughs) I think in many ways um, uh, for a recent personality that I think there's some similarity would be maybe a Rush Limbaugh as Mm -hmm. far as someone who was talking about um, what was going on as you care. I I would say Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck has a a huge museum with American artifacts and really tries to use American history to teach about current events. I would say he's probably the closest in terms of like the modern talk show host. You know, Glenn is kind of a a Brian Beck's 2.0. If if I were to put him, he's less, your dad seemed less religious. I mean, Glenn Beck seems to be fairly um, dominionist where your dad was a little more of classically liberal. Right. I, th- I think that, I think that's right. Yeah. That would have been the thing I would say is uh, differentiates him from, uh, from Mr. Beck is not so religious. Uh, that wasn't really dad's uh, motivation or, or drive, but he would talk about uh, current events and uh, what was going on in the country and, and in the world. Um, communism obviously was a, was a huge motivator at that time. But also, as you said, he would relate so much of these things to um, classic works, uh, whether it was uh, – so for me, I grew up with Thomas Paine as a, uh, as a pinnacle that I should always be aware of and read and, uh, and understand, um, as well as uh, – right. Yeah, I think like Thomas yeah. – I think Glenn Beck kind of did a, he did the original argument where he updated uh, the Federalist Papers and Common Sense was sort of his nod to Thomas Paine, where he kind of updated the language. I've tried to read Thomas Paine. I find some of the old timey language to be somewhat difficult. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that. But yeah, you're, you know, when we're talking about your childhood, your dad, so your dad was a, a political commentator who kind of talked about these old works. And then along the way, he uh, had a supporter who came along, and there was a certain text that uh, Brian felt was very important, the supporter felt was very important, but had been reprinted in updated language. Now, this was like the 70s or 80s, and they had basically softened it, and they had woken it, 
if you were to put it into modern right, terms. Right, that's accurate. Which sparked the idea of what? Do you remember the work? I forget what it so was. So I think the one you're referencing is there was a reprint of uh, Milton's Areopagitica, right? Yes. The essay on, on freedom of the press. And as I recall, the language at the start used the terms modernized and humanized, that the the work had been changed with those two um, uh, deflectors put into place. And for dad, and I think for the supporters that he had at that time, the short of it was they had been changed. It wasn't the original. And that definitely continued to light the fire of what became the remnant trust um, to find the originals and make them available to people so that they could talk about what the authors actually said. Yeah, so he started acquiring a lot of first editions of not just, you know, American revolutionary works like Thomas Paine, but can you talk about his scope of interest in the books that he wanted to collect and and the wide range of it? Sure. It definitely did get started with Americana. So Thomas Paine was was definitely at the forefront, but it slowly expanded to encompass just the ideas of liberty and dignity. Um, where those were found in authors from really around the world, maybe uh, mostly heavily into the Western world, um, Aristotle and Plato and Cicero through Locke and Hobbes and Hume and people like that. But eventually that led to farther in the East and Confucius's works and holy works from around the world that could illuminate or maybe help inform what we think about those ideas. So let's talk about liberty and dignity. And I know we spent a little time, but I want to go a little more in depth on them. But like, define liberty, and then we'll define dignity, but we'll start with liberty. Because I think it's a term like freedom that sort of has gotten to a point. And really, my goal with this conversation is, and the, the point of the podcast it has always been to get people to think. Because I think if you spend a lot of time on social media, you spend a lot of time getting your news and your reactions from social media. You can get carried away in a lot of um, moral panics. You can get carried away with a lot of feelings and emotions. But one thing that I love about your dad's career, about your career, um, is that you encourage people to think. That seemed to be a thing that he yelled at people a lot. Absolutely. Sort of a little bit of a boomerism, like, think, you know, and maybe <laughs> let's start with that. Just you know, the importance of critical thinking outside of just being in the current of current events. Sure. Uh, so man, man thinking, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, delivered a, an address in 1837, the American scholar that informed it a lot. I think he was influenced towards that because his mother, my, my, uh, paternal grandmother was a Phi Beta Kappa in math and physics. And that influenced that that was what we should be doing. We should be thinking about the situations we find ourselves in, the decisions we think we should make, definitely the policies that we want to inflict or uh, put in place for others. And that definitely was, uh, was a driving factor as he started seeking out these books and tried to limit them to the extent you can limit an idea with the ideas of liberty and dignity. And back to what you mentioned about liberty, I think it's of the two, maybe much more easy to define. And I think the use of the term freedom, at least my assessment in say the last 15 years, is that if we were to say it's about freedom, I think that labels us. 
I think people hear you say freedom and they think you're part of um, loosely, you know, the vast right wing conspiracy <laughs> that you're on the fringe and the conservative Christian right or whatever. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but Absolutely. I get what you mean. Yes. Uh, but, but again, I, I do think it, it gets you uh, labeled. And so liberty is more about, um, you know, I think that freedom gets used in, uh, was it Roosevelt that, you know, the, the freedoms from fear and things like that, rather than the liberty that you can do things. There are things that you're allowed to do. We could go back to uh, the Declaration of Independence and talk about whether those liberties, those freedoms come from God and the, you know, rights and otherwise maybe what's bestowed upon you from government. Yeah, let's talk about negative and positive liberties. Sure. You know, and, and the difference between the two. You know, you uh, like the Declaration of Independence versus the Declaration of Human Rights. I know that's something that that maybe you could speak on in terms of the difference between those two types of liberties. Sure. It, uh, and again, I use that uh, the reference to Roosevelt and the the freedom from like freedom from fear, freedom from want, and things like that. And I don't believe that that's what liberty is about i think liberty is about um being free to make choices that you want to do um again we have, there's some sort of line of demarcation between my my liberty butting up against it interfering with what you get to do um currently it seems like my liberty is supposed to be limited by where your feelings might be <laughs> and that upsetting you or or saying something that, that might be uh, upsetting to someone that that's somehow me overstepping those bounds and you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned to me is, is us trying to understand what motivates us, what our first principles are. If yeah. we want to use that term, I also think using that term, it just like using the word freedom starts to, uh, starts to get you labeled like out of the gate. Some people just stop listening, but what are the things that, that motivate us? What is the most important thing or what are the five most important things that I consider in interacting with people or that you consider they're probably not the same things mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. It's about understanding what they are though. And, right. and where do we find them? Who do we look to? Um, do we just need to read Aristotle? Um, as an English major, I would say uh, you need to read Shakespeare. Do you only need to read Shakespeare? Absolutely not. But I, I would, you know, maybe that's a good place to start and having those conversations similar to this, uh, you and I sitting down and talking about it as things that we both come in with different experiences, but doing it in a way that we don't seem to be either willing or capable of doing today, that we can listen to each other and that we can disagree. Yeah, because when it comes to liberty and showing other people dignity uh, and it, it, libertarians kind of pigeonhole liberty on basically what the state can do. Although I think that's evolving within the right libertarians, conservatives are evolving into more of a positivist vision of liberty. I, I need to be protected from having to deal with other people. So let's use the state to enforce. And I think that's a dangerous impulse and starts to infringe on human dignity. And likewise, I think the left obviously infringes on people's liberty and, and ability to um, just run their businesses and their lives as they see fit, as we've seen with some of the, the cake cases in Colorado and, and Creative 301. Um, you know, and I think the, the reason I wanted to have this conversation, you mentioned first principles. Um, I'm reading a book right now by Thomas Ricks called First Principles. It's very good. And in 2016, he had the idea, he, he had a similar idea that I've kind of stumbled across lately. Um, 
it was actually triggered by the Comey show on eight, on Hulu. I th- it's about James Comey and how right. he's dealing with it. And the actual quote was something along the lines of, you know, James, how are you dealing with this? Well, when you deal with somebody like Trump, you just have to go back to first principles, right? And, uh, and that, yep. that kind of sparked for me, like, yeah, you know, the confusion of all of this stuff, I, I've been on a long journey myself just trying to say, you know what? I'm confused because I'm not really digging into exactly what I believe. Sure. I'm more focusing on where I want to stand and who I want to stand with and who I want to stand against as opposed to what I stand for, right? Right. And so what is that process of working out what my first principles are, what I believe, what I'm willing to fight for, maybe even have to physically fight for? I don't think that we're... I personally don't think we're in the danger of shooting wars, (laughs) but I think that stuff can easily happen as we start to slide. But, you know, you may, you, you sort of grew up like my wife where my wife was homeschooled and she was going to get Christian constitutionalism, whether she liked it or not. Maybe you did too, but you know, you grew up with, um, your dad grew up with a very, we talked about your grandma in the last episode, strong willed, Sm- fiercely smart woman, I think, was at University of Chicago. Right, that's right. At a time when women did not go to college, and instilled in your dad this love of education and the classics. Uh, you know, when we start talking about principles, I imagine that was a word that you grew up with and lived with you very presently. Talk about your childhood, and then when you got to the decision of whether you're going to embrace the family business or not, right? <laughs> right. Are you going to go the other way and become a pink-haired professor of uh, sociology? My hair was red, oh, but yeah. <laughs> or, well, you're Gen X. You had probably your rings and tattoos and stuff. I might have. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, or are you going to go the way of, like, I'm going to go down the, the classical education route? Sure. So I, uh, I grew up in... 10 of my 12 years of education in uh, primary were a private Christian school. And there's no question that um, I was steeped in uh, the Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman kind of basis of things. Um, that was more motivated by my mother than it was by my father. But he was supportive of the, uh, I guess, maybe the rigor of some of that education. But learning to think about it was something he encouraged even when in that um, butted up against the, I'll use doctrine to be nice, <laughs> of uh, uh, of what I was being exposed to or being taught or being told. And so I learned to think critically because of him. Um, and it was, it was welcomed by him. What did he do to help you think critically as a parent? Uh, partly what he did was he said, that's not what I believe. And in such a way that he could... Uh, I remember dad always leaving early in the morning and I remember at some point I woke up early for some reason I was watching like Hugh Downs or something on ABC at Mm -hmm. 5 a.m. And he came out of the bedroom on his way out to work and we had a conversation and I said, what do you think about God? Because, you yeah, know, I got to go to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Does yeah, well, God have feet. I don't yeah, have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, you need to go back to bed. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a brief conversation, but we had other conversations later and that he could converse with me. And I'm saying, look, you know, what I'm learning is the following in this Christian school or whatever. And I said, I have questions about some of the details or whatever. 
And he said, look, you can have questions about the details. I have questions about the details. I don't think that, you know, X happened in this fashion, in this manner of time. And I think that there's a difference between um, an atheist and a deist. So we talked about Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was a deist. And he is, he interacted my father with people who said, oh, that's the same thing as being an atheist. And yeah, that's a conversation you have to have. And nowadays, if you said that to someone, we would just stop talking. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're obviously wrong. We can't discuss it. But that he would have that conversation with me. And I think that I wasn't necessarily unique in that regard. He had that conversation with everybody. Sure. That's how my dad functioned. But I think that's the first kind of um, rule or principle or lesson here, I guess, is that your dad was smart enough to know what he needed. And that that's, I feel that now with a four-year-old, it's like, I've got to really be on top of my game and learning and understanding so I can teach this to someone else, right? Absolutely. Did did he, was it uh, ranty or was it a conversation? Like, how did you, you know, and, and what have you, with your own kids, mimicked in the positives of him? Um, so I think at least what what I recall is it was more conversational. Not to say that I haven't uh, endured... a a large duffel bag full of rants (laughs) over my life. Um, But it's about being able to entertain those questions when they come up. That's what kids are full of. And I know that I have not done a perfect job with, with my kids. I know there are times that I'm just like, yeah, that's just kind of what happens. Or I BS my way through some sort of answer because I'm done. Yeah, or I you go just work. keep looking at your phone and say, "Go watch your tablet." Uh, that that might happen. <laughs> um, but it's it is about having that conversation and being willing to to discuss it. Uh, I I've used this example. I think when I talk to people, and I like it, so I'll use it again. Um, whenever to so the Marvel universe, whatever you think good or ill of it, when those movies started to come out for me, uh, a geek from way back when you are a gen X libertarian son, you're, you're an, uh, who turned into a libertarian. There's lots of sci-fi in here. Absolutely. You could do an entire podcast yeah. on the history of sci-fi, just about. a little David Brin down there to, yeah, right. uh, to poke at the libertarians. But, yeah. um, it was about what was going on, right? It wasn't just about the spectacle that's on the screen. It's about how people are acting and why they're acting that way. And at some point we're watching it. I'm sure for the fifth time for me, the first time for maybe what would have been the 10 year old at that point. And there's a scene in the first captain America where they're training and they're trying to pick out who's going to be the soldier. And, uh, Tommy Lee Jones is being Tommy Lee Jones. And, and uh, they throw the grenade out, right? Because he definitely doesn't want Steve Rogers. He wants the other guy who seems like the right one. And Rogers, of course, does this very heroic, dramatic. He draw, jumps on the grenade. And um, it strikes me. And I paused the movie and I said, okay, kids, what's going on? Hmm. And and not because I am the purveyor of all the wisdom in the world, but because I recognized at that point that there is a huge event taking place in the in the in the presentation of who these characters are and i know what i think about them because i grew up reading marvel comic books and i love these guys but i want it to be more than that i want the kids to be such that they can sit and they can watch and it's a great spectacle and they can enjoy that and that's what movies are for but that they can also have a deeper meaning from it they can also take that moment and say oh this is about self-sacrifice and he's the only one that did it and why is that? Why is that important? Is that more important? You know, again, we could see later, but how does that inform the character that he is? 
if that's his first instinct, how does he live the rest of his life? How does he interact with people when we know that he is about taking one for the team? And those, those moments I like to imagine that I try to have with the kids. I am sure they think I rant. They think <laughs> that, oh my God, I asked dad this question and he hasn't shut up for the last 15 minutes because um, I, I have a good friend who's an attorney and he and I used to joke when we were younger that one of the great things we liked about hanging out together is that there were generally weren't any silences and that we were good with that because we'd be having a conversation and if the other person didn't have anything to say, we, one of us would just fill that void and talk about whatever, but it was about that give and take. And so I think I do that with the kids maybe too much and saying, okay, this is what I think. And I say five things and then I keep going. Um, and usually it's a good thing that, that Amy could be around or whatever, and she can look at me and give me a sign. Like, okay. <laughs> she gives you the light at yeah. the back of the club. Like, yeah, yeah, you're, you need to cut it <laughs> off right now. Yeah, and I, this is not a parenting podcast. It's as much a, a how-to on, on self-discovery and figuring out those principles. Ryan Holiday, I have mentioned this on the show a long time ago, but you know, Ryan Holiday said, you know, I just don't really read blogs and listen to modern. He doesn't listen to Ben Shapiro and Rachel Maddow. He's like... I take a subject that's happening in the news and I read a book from 50 years ago or I read history about a subject that's happening. And I think that's uh, sort of an interesting place to start that has really helped me kind of find some peace about modern uh, hi history and what we're living through and that it's not as bad as you think it's going to be if you understand the election of 1800 and you understand the the fact that the republic is eight years old and there are two factions that are tearing each other apart and tearing the country apart and then there's intrigue as to who gets elected and there's it's thrown into the house between uh jefferson and i think burr and yet they still made it or you have uh, investigations into richard nixon and yet we still made it i think right. you know when you when you study history uh, it's such an empowering thing and bringing you some peace if you understand the human story that came before us. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, it's it's easy to get caught up, uh, I think, in the emotion of it and uh, and some of the the hoopla and the spectacle. And I understand when people say, "Oh, I think this is this is it, right? This is things are going to break down. We're going into class warfare in in the real sense, not just throwing it around." And one of the things I've experienced is I had that conversation back in 1997, which doesn't seem like that long ago to me, but um, it's a couple of years that um, it was a, it was a radio interview. Actually, I think it was a place in Atlanta. Somebody I met through a libertarian convention, even that said, Hey, I'd love to have you on for two minutes on the radio or something like mm. that. And in talking to her, I think it was a, her, it was a, Oh, you know, you're talking about these issues and people are really upset about how the constitution's being affected. And, you know, is there another time in U S history that you could relate this to? And it was an easy thing to say, well, yeah, this is similar to, you know, the revolution in that, you know, people are really upset about what the government's doing or whatever. But, also, you know, now you flash forward 25 some years from that to today, it's like, yeah, we're having the same conversation. And you're right that it is great to look back at history and say, okay, what were these guys talking about? And not in a, man, we're really spinning our wheels. But I think from the standpoint of we've had these conversations before, let's look at what we talked about. Let's look at what people said. And 
maybe that allows you some time to figure out what's important to you. Not what personality do you like, not who says things that upset you or that are mean or, you know, who is going to support the program that you care about, but who's coming out and and saying the things that, that you support, who seems like, and again, I think it's difficult. I don't, I don't look at, um, I, I don't know when the last time is I looked at a ticket, uh, for an election and thought, man, that's the guy. <laughs> like I can, I see clearly now this is where my salvation lies. Um, you know, my, and I, my last guy, uh, I'll just say it, it was Zamash. And even now I'm like, I just don't know that he's the guy. I just don't know. Right. I'm, I'm with him on everything he believes and how he messages and, but then he lacks this fundamental ability to build an organization, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, it's, you're never going to find somebody that has that 100%. It just, it doesn't, if you're looking to man for your salvation, you are going to be mightily disappointed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the, the seeds of it are in man, obviously they're in the people that we deal with. And, um, I understand, I think for from I don't know that I fully understand, but I think I can look at what I'll consider to be a two-sided um, conversation that I can look at people and understand that they love the idea of we're talking about the political elections now, a, a complete outsider coming in. They're going to shake things up. We haven't seemed to be making any progress. Let's do something really off the wall. And I can see that appeal. I can, I can appreciate the it seems like we need to just come in and, and start maybe in a fresh way. But at the same time, I can see from the other side that says, this is somebody who doesn't understand the programs at all. And they're coming in and, and running wild. Um, and to, to bring it back to my nerd roots, I can also point to people and say, you know, in the sixties, uh, uh, Frank Herbert wrote this book called Dune. Which isn't really about an awesome leader. It's about the perils of charismatic leadership mm. and how the downfall comes from that. Um, so there are there are things to be gleaned from. I think lots of things. I was having a conversation today with a friend of mine, and we were. Um, he was. He was. He's very in the vein of the grooming panic, and like we ended up at the French Revolution. Okay, <laughs> and the and the Salem witch trials, and we're just gonna have to go out and find people that we think are groomers and just put them in camps. And I, and he was not really joking. Sure. And I, you know, it's just so easy, I think, for us to get to the French Revolution or the Salem witch trials as just people. If we're kind of in those, not that there aren't legitimate problems with with what he was saying. It's just the literal execution of how he was saying it it's it's if you don't understand the strains of how people in salem slipped into killing a dozen two dozen people almost 200 accused if you don't understand the mentalities of some of this and that's where i think rooting yourself in principles and understanding the liberty and dignity of other people and justice as a principle i think is is incredibly important but you know as somebody who kind of designed, I don't want to say curriculum, but, you know, if you're going to a school, uh, we were having a conversation one day and you were going out to uh, law school and you were trying to think, you know, what book should I take to this school to show this group of law students? Um, 
you know, and, and we're standing in front of the, you know, all of these great books and getting to hold a first edition Mencken was uh, my personal thrill. It wasn't the Gutenberg Bible, it was the Mencken. Um, but, you know, when you're going out to these schools and you're trying to think, what do I want to say to this group of students? Maybe that's a helpful place for our audience who may be sitting there kind of going, yeah, I'm a little overwhelmed. I don't really know what I believe. Do I just pick up Thomas Paine and start reading the old-timey language without understanding the context? Do I just go straight to the, the, the Adam, John Adams papers? Or are there books that I need to read beforehand? I'm just overwhelmed, Chris. Teach me, you know, guide me through how to set up that curriculum for myself so I can understand these classic arguments. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, we'll say that, you know, once and for all, I'll lay out exactly what people should read and in <laughs> what order. Um, and, should I just uh, buy the new lifetime reading plan? Yeah, if you guys just write this down and, right. and uh, yeah, I'll give you the address to send me a check. Um, there's, uh, I think part of it is... Uh, yeah, Thomas Paine's not a not a bad place to start. I wouldn't say you know what's the process. Maybe right. not the books, but if you're, what's the process that maybe somebody can apply to their subject of interest? Maybe it's segregation. Maybe it's uh, suffrage. Maybe it's you know their particular piece that they're interested in. What's the process that you've seen that worked for you and for other people? I think you start with where you are uh, to say where you're at. What right? What right now are you are you dealing with? Right. So let's say it's um it's segregation and whatever form that takes. Um, from the 60s until now, the various ways that we're dealing with that. Um, and you say, okay, what what am I talking about? What are people telling me? What's somebody telling me that I don't agree with? And why is it that, you know, what do I think? Not not what you believe, not what that core principle is, but what do you actually, what do you think is the right thing or the wrong thing about that? And then, you know, there's some amount of distilling that. Um you know, to take an example, I, I think that uh, that we should set up. I'll, we'll just hypothetically create one that we should set up a a specific student union that's only for LGBTQ plus, and that should be that should be a space that only they get to use. Like, okay, let's. Why are we going to do that? Well, they need to be in a safe place, um, and they need to be able to express themselves without being concerned about whatever. And I'll, I'll, I am randomly creating this scenario sure. as well. There's a number of other offensive things you could choose. We'll just go with right. that one. And so, okay, let's <laughs> let's start with that one. That they need to have a place where they where they feel safe and they can express themselves. Don't they have that already? No. If they don't, you say no. They don't. They don't have that. And let's say, okay, well, why not? What are they? What are they experiencing that is um, either preventing that or um, maybe not preventing some, not, not the right word. Uh, again, there's so many terms you use that, that create images. It's not that there's a wall in their way, but they feel some sort of rebuff from society or it's from the their concerns. Basically, how do we collect the concerns of the people that are feeling the need for that particular right, thing? Right. And say, you know, why is it, why is it important? And, and let's think about, okay, is freedom of expression, is what we're talking about. They need to be able to express themselves specifically freedom of expression. Where's that term come from? I mean, I think uh, those kinds of things are fairly straightforward to Google that and say, well, what's the origin of this? Who, or who talks about it? Who wrote about it? Um, my experience would point me to a, a litany of books and authors over the last few thousand years 
that I would say, this would be somebody that you could read about. See what they had to say about justice. You want to you talk about justice? What did Aristotle have to say? Because Aristotle doesn't talk about just one kind of justice, right? He, he, he goes through a list of them. And, oh, I can't read Aristotle because, you know, it's in Greek. Like, yeah, I, I can't read Greek either. You, <laughs> you can find an English translation of it. Um, there's nothing wrong with starting with like a Cliff's Notes. There's nothing wrong with starting at Wikipedia. Spark Notes, by the way, is free now. Spark Notes, exactly. Yeah. So the, the uh, so because for me, I just uh, I've been reading the Iliad for yeah. several years, <laughs> uh, and I finally was like, you know, I really got to get through book two here, and uh, I'm not going to read the Spark Notes. I'm going to read the Iliad. Yep. But I'm going to read the Spark Notes along with it, and you know they have, you know, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty for spark notes they have uh, montesquieu's the spirit of laws those are two particularly important pieces of historical works and spark notes is free to give you the context there yep and Absolutely. those are fairly short books that can kind of help you understand the philosophical foundation of the american founding for instance yep and they can give you uh you know it's one of the great things about sparks and cliffs is that there's also questions that they you know and it's pre-made and you can tell me that so-and-so who made up this list of questions is a communist or a fascist or whatever it really doesn't matter there's still questions you don't like them let's talk about why you don't like the questions that right. we're starting with it, it's about getting moving in that process um chat gpt i would also say sorry to cut you off oh right you know go to chat gpt or go to google uh, particularly i found chat gpt useful in kind of prepping for podcasts you know what is the history you know i just got in there you know how do i discover my first principles what are the what are the basic principles of libertarianism what are the basic principles of free expression what is the history of free expression and it just starts to give you a guide that you can start with it doesn't tell you all the answers. It gives you a short amount of information that then you can go to the book of knowledge, Wikipedia, mm -hmm. and start looking at Wikipedia. And you may not ever get to reading the on the spirit, uh, the spirit of laws by Montesquieu, but you may have a better appreciation of that, you know. And then may, maybe once you've read the Wikipedia page, now all of a sudden you want to try it, give it a shot. You know, and, and work through it. Absolutely. I think it's about um, actively engaging. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but it's about working towards it. It's not that um, after five or 17 and a half years, you will arrive at the destination and you'll understand all of human society and how we interact and why we make really dumb decisions. Um, but you'll find yourself moving along that path and it'll be something that you can continue to pursue. Uh, I'll bring us back to Thomas Paine briefly, just because uh, when you mentioned like, oh, what do you want to say to a group or how do you get people involved? I love to point to Thomas Paine because I think he encompasses the entire spectrum of people's political thought, because mm -hmm. as an individual, m my take on him is that he changed over his life. Um, not that he stopped being the man of common sense and the rights of man and the American crisis, but that he became also the man who could write agrarian justice and could talk about the distribution of the wealth and the production of crops and things like that. And I think that that's an anathema to most people. 
I don't think people would point to someone and say, oh, this is, you know, this is a man who um, evolved in his thinking. I don't know that he necessarily, you know, morphed from one thing to another, but he was a complex individual. <laughs> Nearly getting beheaded in the French Revolution does that to me, and I yeah. imagine, yeah. Yeah, getting put, put in jail, um, asking uh, President Washington, please get him out. I'm really for you. I'm really for you. Oh, no, I'm not for you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and, and that's part of it also that he was a complex individual is something that I don't think we grasp and say enough. I think that we say, um, what did we talk about, Aristotle earlier or something like that? Aristotle, you know, supported slavery. So should we no longer read anything Aristotle ever ever writes, or should we put him in his in his context at that time and recognize that slavery wasn't going to be ended for three thousand years? <laughs> it's, right. it's it's a difficult question, and I don't think it's a uh, no. I so my my answer to that would be no. We don't toss Aristotle out with uh, with the bathwater, if you will. Um, and I would point to Sheila C. Kennedy, who had, had a conversation with me at one point. And might have been during the process of the book you were mentioning, but otherwise, um, she taught a class with my father at some point at former head of the Indiana Civil Liberties Union. Yep. And we were discussing something. I have no idea what. And during the conversation, she looked at me and she said, you know, one of the things I really want my students to be able to say by the end of any of my classes. No, what? She goes, I want them to be able to say it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And that's. And sometimes that's the case, and that doesn't fit with sound bites and TV shows and TikTok clips or whatever you want to point to. Um, these are tough conversations. There's a reason we've continued to have the same conversations for hundreds and thousands of years in trying to understand how we're going to interact with one another, what we do and don't care about. And I think that we need to take the time to do that. Um, if you're going to go to Cliff Notes and you're going to go to Spark Notes, of course, I'm a big proponent that you need to buy the actual print copy and you can make little notes and marginalia in it. But it's a great place to start. Um, what is it that, that you find interesting with it? I've recently been looking for uh, the, the Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer just because I read it when I was an undergrad and I'd like to read it again. I don't think it holds the answers to everything, but. Maybe there's something I can glean from it. Maybe there's something useful. Sorry for uh, checking out. I forgot to tell someone that I wasn't showing up at one o'clock. Uh, <laughs> my standing personal training appointment is like, hey, uh, you coming? I'm like, I am not. Um, what are some other ways of kind of self-discovering some of these principles, other tools that maybe you might find useful? Um, so I'll, one experience that I would point to is you're interested in an author or a topic. And uh, this is something that, that not a lot of people do anymore, but this is a way that I did it back in the 90s when I was in, in college and uh, I guess undergrad and graduate school. So you're in the section and you go to a Barnes and Noble or you go to a Hyde Brothers books up in Fort Wayne or mm -hmm. some used bookstore and you're looking for a specific thing. Don't forget to look around that section as well. It, yeah. it, there's, there's no harm in looking uh, two shelves down or the next book over. Who's that author? What are they talking about? Is that title relevant? Um, some of my best research papers 
uh, you know, got got material that way because I looked at the book that was next to a book I was looking for, and there was something relevant. And again, it's okay to do that and read through it and go, yeah, I don't really find anything useful. Uh, but at least you're looking. You, I cannot overstress this. I'm a book hound. And I love the library. I love going to the library. I love finding the Dewey Decimal section of the thing I'm looking for, looking through the book, seeing what's interesting, searching a word in the database, going on Amazon, searching for that topic. Right now, I'm big on American colonial history of the Spanish variety, for instance. Um, Alan Taylor's American Colonies. Uh, I think it's Robert Goodwin's America you know, and then once you pick one of those books and you start reading, then they start recommending books, right? And looking at their footnotes, and then going from there. And I think the challenge that I always have is, do I have to read all this, <laughs> or, you know, if if you say, you know, you got to read Thomas Paine, all right, well, what do I got to get the Library of America's black, red, white, and black? Oh yeah, there's you two know, copies over there. You definitely of, need to get those. Of course, right? You know, like, oh, I got to read all 700 pages of this book. So, like, or, common ha, sense ha, is maybe 20 pages. Uh, start start with the 20. I got I, kids, and yeah. how can I read 20 pages of old-timey language? You take your time. It, it's tough. It takes work. It's not easy. I know what it's like to have kids, right? Well, I've got three. Um, it takes your time, and it is difficult. And at your end, at the end of the day, and you don't want to sit down and read something that's difficult, right? You want to watch the John, the Jack Ryan program on mm-hmm. Amazon, right? That's easier, and I get that, and you do that, and that, and that's okay. Um, but try to make some time. You take that time, right? You can't create that time, but you say, look, on Friday evenings, maybe that's a bad day, Tuesday afternoons, I'm going to take 40 minutes and I'm going to read this author that someone told me, someone who I respect has told me this is somebody to read. And I think that's part of it as well. You say, oh, well, you can't just tell me to read Thomas Paine. I'm not telling you to read Thomas Paine. Right. Um, I would tell you personally, Chris to Chris, you should read Thomas Paine. Right. And then let's talk about it. I'd love to talk about paying with somebody and the people that are, uh, you know, listening to your podcast, like they have people they talk to about these things. Yeah. Those are a fantastic resource. They're people you don't agree with. Talk to them. What are you reading right now? Why do you think this? Um, you know, obviously, you know, I have the one true faith and you don't, but I'd like to understand why you have that. Right. Um, I think it's it's a fantastic thing that we have the ability that we we live in the country that we live in, founded on the principles, maybe not founded by people that you like, but founded on principles that are earth shattering. I mean, they they came to these conclusions not easily. They set things up after looking at history and thousands of years and what happens and why do people get into bad situations and they didn't make it perfect. You mean the slaveholders? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's the the interesting thing is just with that you get to dismiss the American founding and the revolutionary. I know the Dutch will say that they were the first republic, but f the Dutch, right? Like, <laughs> I think the talk about the ideological origins of the American Revolution and this is something that I talked to Andy Horning about and that I'm really studying for myself in a systematic way. I'm starting with the colonies, starting with the Spanish, then I'm moving into the rest of them and then I'm moving into the colonial era, the revolution, into the Jacksonian era. Like I'm I'm picking like three or four history books on each of these periods. 
and reading through them just to get my general knowledge base up to know what I need to look for, right? Um, because what I f- want to understand is the uh, exper- American experiment. And what does America really mean? What does, you know, the, the founding of just the Declaration of Independence, it had a whole section on slavery that Congress cut out because in that time, they could not get independence passed if they left that in. It was always a, we will deal with this down the road. Right. Uh, it was not, we all accept this. It's just, it's like abortion, right? In mm-hmm, our time, mm-hmm. for instance. This is something that both sides feel deeply passionate about. It's not something we can end or do, right? So I think it's unfair when we sort of look back and go, let's dismiss all of the ideas of one generation of people because they didn't have consensus on this one issue. Let's pick and choose what was good. Just like I said, pick and choose what was good about the way that your dad taught these values to you and how do you apply them to the future? Um, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, Andy Horning said, I think it's pretty clear the American experiment has failed, which I think is a very common feeling amongst a lot of libertarians. I don't know that I fully agree with that. I don't know if you agree with that, but I I look at it and go, look, ideas of justice, ideas of liberty, ideas of how much of a person's virtue can participate in the public square is then negotiated by regular people as opposed to noblemen, as mm-hmm. opposed to oligarchs, although it is certainly trending towards the oligarchs way, but that's the, the way of history, right? I mean, when you reflect back on the founding and the American experiment, do you think it's failed? No, I don't. Um, I, I, I understand people that do think that. Um, I don't understand why they come to that con- Well. Maybe I do understand why they kept they that fought over taxes, and we're not fighting over taxes. And look at how much we pay for taxes, Chris. Absolutely, yeah, and we're paying more for taxes than I think is probably reasonable. That doesn't mean we failed. You know, when we fail is when we stop. You know, when, when and and this is uh, I don't, I don't know what all influences this this worldview that I have. Um, the myth of Sisyphus. You know, go back to the, the Greeks and the Romans. We want to talk about this guy that's condemned to roll a rock up a hill and then it rolls back down and he has to roll it up again. That, that's what he's going to do forever, right? That's his punishment. And we can look at society and we can look at decisions that are being made or actions or uh, Supreme Court rulings. That's, that's big recently that all of a sudden we've decided to pay attention to the Supreme Court. Um, and say that's absolutely the wrong thing. And that's it's good that people are still reacting to it and saying that kind of thing. And it's good that there are people going, no, this is good. This is what we should be doing because they're out there trying to make America, trying to make the United States of America. My uh, my high school Spanish teacher would shake her finger at me if I referred to us as America mm-hmm. because uh, she did not appreciate that. But at the United States, that we're still working on it, right? It is an experiment. It is still an experiment. We are a blip on the screen of history's radar. Um, we haven't been here very long. We could be gone really quickly. Um, and that's why we keep working. I think that's why people continue to talk about, it. I think because people still care, we are trending. I wouldn't disagree with that towards oligarchs. Um, I think we need to talk about that. I think we need to think about what we're doing, but I think that's something that we can correct. You know, there's more of us than there are of them. Right. Um, 
yeah, and, and maybe we sort of wrap up with Brian and Sheila, okay. you know, who had, I think, uh, you know, Brian was this, you know, he took her to task for saying conservative. He, he, he was not, he would not be labeled, which I thought was uh, very smart. Does not want to be labeled. Excuse me. Um, you know, but, and Sheila was sort of like this nineties liberal Bill Maher type, right? Probably yeah. if, if I were to put her in the vein of something that the audience would understand. Your dad was, uh, is more of like, uh, they're both still alive. Excuse me. I'm using past tense because the book was 20 years ago, but they had this partnership where they mm-hmm. taught classes. They argued. She wrote a book, this book, and it wasn't always kind. Right, right? right. There are things about Brian that I felt were, if I were Brian, I'd be pissed, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I'm very sensitive. Um, you know, but they they had like this partnership, and they may still be friends, I don't know, but they had this partnership around principles. What were those principles that kind of took somebody who was center right and center left and put them together to teach a class to write a book to have lunch together and to argue sure um i think it's that's a good question i need to ask each of them when i see them next but um some of it's self-determination some of it's the value of um critical thinking um and also some of it's the value and the belief that disagreeing is okay that disagreeing doesn't make it a non-starter um yeah they they taught (laughs) they taught this class together for for a few years i don't know exactly how long and what was the basis of it um (laughs) wasn't it like uh it was like philosophical and political and political theory and how it's then and now yeah i think contemporary and and more or uh older takes on basically they used to argue so we argue now too and it's all fine yeah Yeah. it's like rawls's theory of justice um would be taught as would uh era pizzica by milton or um uh john stuart mills on liberty and things like that and they would have that conversation and yeah, they definitely didn't agree on what the right way is to move forward, like right now. But they agreed that it made sense to educate the students on a variety of those things. Right. It and show the one. philosophical disagreements in history between two people that respected a Burke versus a Thomas Paine, right. for instance, and highlight some of those disagreements again to show, look, it's... That disagreeing is okay, and that disagreeing doesn't mean that what you believe in the other person is 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 evil or uh, some sort of sociopath or something like that. It's that it's about those first principles. That that might be what it comes down to. Is say at, at a very core, it's about A, and for me, it's about B. I, I don't know what those A and B are, but to to kind of go back and and to bring up this subject because. Uh, we talked about the word dignity and we, right. and we talked about what that means and thinking about, can we, can we define that? Um, there are a few moments in, in the last number of years of my life that have stuck with me. Um, one of those moments was giving a presentation, talking about books and liberty and dignity and everything. And I had a guy who I, I know fairly well and who I respect, um, and it was the first time he had heard me talk about these things or whatever. And at the end, there was a question. He's like, yeah, I get the, that liberty, that, that stuff. That's yeah, all fine. Waving his hands, kind of dismissive. He says, but dignity is, is kind of where I'm at. I'm a, I'm a therapist, right? Family therapist. I deal with people. I deal with emotions. I deal with how people feel and that kind of stuff. What's your working de- definition of dignity? 
and I was dumbstruck because <laughs> I took it as a given. Right, you of say whatever dignity. it is I say it, right. it just has a meaning, right? That carries along with it. And I would define it as an individual has the right to be respected by other people and not be forced to do things against their dignity. Is that a okay? That's sloppier, right? All right. That. Again, we can agree or disagree on that. Right. I I think that that's for me. Um, it's just one of those words that you hear and you sort of go, "Oh yeah, we're going to respect about, the individual." It's, a, it's the fact that people have value. Thank you. Okay. Okay. And I don't know that that's the best definition, but it's the one I use now. If somebody right. asked me that, I would be able to respond to it today. And I think it's about when he asked you that, had you not thought about it, or nope. were you just like never thought about it? Really? Never, never thought about a specific you definition. I was thirty-four. All right, so like fifteen years into your career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> T- I, talking about liberty and dignity. Talking about both of those things, and no one had ever put uh, called me to task on that, and and it was great, right? And it was one of those things that um, that I think maybe today certain people would be so pissed off. And like mad and not like this person. How dare you try and call me out on that? No, I'm like, for me, yeah, I was on the spot and I was embarrassed because I didn't have an answer. And generally, I can give you an answer to pretty much anything. Mm. But it was, I think, I think that's what it's about. I think it comes down to that dignity. And what does that mean that we value one another or that each person has value? And how do we demonstrate that? How do we show it to one another when we interact? How do we show it to a group? Let alone, how do we show it to a segment of society or to a certain, if we use the word class, however we want to apply that. And I think that's part of it is trying to understand it. And those can be, um, you can come down and say, look, my first principle is it's about dignitas. It's about the value of the individual and how that's shown and preserved and protected in society. And somebody else can say, no, I really think it's about freedom. It's about liberty. It's about my ability to do pretty much whatever I want with my things without hurting you. And those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but they can create moments and conversations that are tough to get past. How do you do that? How do you have those conversations and say, look, at the end of the day, I get it. You want people to feel good, but I think it's more important for people to have the freedom to do what they want to do. Now, I don't want them to do that and to inflict harm on someone. So maybe there's a, I can say he should have freedom to do it, but it's here where he oversteps. And that that's more, that's important. We have to make sure that's preserved. There's a cutoff there. And in doing that, maybe that helps on the other side to say, look, it's not an infringement on your value. This guy's overstepped. Right. And I mean, I I think those are good things. Those are great things to talk about. Those are great conversations. It's good to have a conversation and leave it and be like, ah, I really don't know. And to be able to say that to somebody, ah, you know, I, I don't know, you know, oh, you know, you mentioned so-and-so whatever, you know, what about this other author? And I I don't know. I haven't read them. That's one thing that's 20 years of public life has taught me. I'm not for everybody. I'm not, you know, I used to be an extreme people pleaser. Um, and I'm not for everybody. I'm not going to be for everybody. It's just not how it is. It's not reality. You know, you're not going to convince everybody of exactly what you believe. You're not, you know, it just, it's just, I think people have discomfort with uncertainty definitely, and they want things to be certain and very clear. And that's just not how it's going to work. You know, I was presented with an inconvenient fact today that, I've got to wrestle with that. I'm not going to go into it because I don't talk about things that I'm not ready to speak on. But, you know, it, it I was like, 
all right, I want to research because I know there's a, a fact that balances this, right? Like, mm-hmm. or what was this person's motivation for doing this research? Or what was this person's incentive for writing this book? I have a hard time kind of buying into a lot of right-wing media because, well, if you have a movie production company, your incentive is to downgrade Disney because you want people watching your kids' movies, right? Right, yeah. Right? So, I, you always, qui bono is always kind of a fundamental principle. But that let's talk about kids. Okay. You know, kids these days are just on their uh, iPads and their Nintendo Dashes or whatever they're called. Switch. You know, Switch, thank you. You know, Dash, I'm like sure that. when you walk in with a 1658 copy of the, you know, the Pilgrim's Progress or whatever and... You know, you're wa- good. You're wa- uh, John Bunyan. It's good stuff. There's right. one right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I didn't even see it there, but you know, you're walking in with. Uh, I know my books. Yeah, I, no, I, I get it. I've I've read the first uh, three three. Oh, I had chapters, to read the but... whole thing in school. Oh, <laughs> it's a slog. But again, you know, I think you could pull that. That's just a good one to point to because you know people have names like obstinate and pliant uh-huh. and things like that. You could pull maybe uh, a few paragraphs out of that as a good uh you know object lesson with people and say right. let's read this and what's this about and it could be there's some there's some funniness to oh that's his name because that's how he acts yes wouldn't it be nice if we all walked around with monikers if that you, explained who we were you could get the updated language and read it to your seven-year-old at bedtime probably but you know <laughs> you walk in into a high school classroom with these old books with all these authors that are dead white men and i just have to imagine the kids don't care was that your experience what was your reaction when you'd walk in with a lot of these classic works you know was it i think the the conventional wisdom is that kids just don't give a crap about these ideas they're just on their tablets uh so so i kind of understand that i'll uh i'll pat myself on the back and say that our kids our 15 year old just got a phone and our 18-year-old got a phone when he entered high school, and it's a conscious decision, and it was uncomfortable, and it was yeah. tough for us to, to stick to that. They have tablets. They have things that they look at and watch movies on, stuff like that, but they didn't walk around with phones all the time. Um, I think that that has some influence on the fact that my 18-year-old doesn't care too much about social media. Mm, good. Maybe that's a trend just in that age group. But, a little bit. But, but, but that could be a good thing. Um, no, I didn't find that experience. Um, that's not to say without exception. Yes. Kids are jaded and disinterested and from high school age, um, they, they can be a lot like that. But my experience was, uh, college kids, high school classes, history classes that people were interested in what these documents were. They immediately had a reverence or a, a, a museum res- response. Like they wanted to distance themselves mm-hmm. from it. I don't want to get too close, whatever. But when you talked about what's going on with them, what's, what's the, the context of when this document came out, why is it important? Have you ever heard the name of this document before and why? And say, you know, there, there's a reason this is something that you're, you're talking about, whether you're talking about it in history class or you're talking about Smith's Wealth of Nations and Malthus's Principles of Population in an economics class. All the stuff we had to learn about. Exactly. But would have been made more real by seeing it. I, th- I think that's exactly what it is. Um, I, 
English major, top to bottom, right? I got a master's in literature. That's what my undergrad was in. And I have more copies of Norton Critical Editions <laughs> of, <laughs> of those things. And those are great resources, too. I think that could even be uh, a good step once you get comfortable with the uh, the Wikipedia or whatever. You find a Norton Critical. Um, There's companion books that you would normally get. just go to a college textbook store. Absolutely. You find, find used on eBay and yeah. on Amazon or on uh, adall.com. American great, primary sources, you know. Everything the, around yeah. the world, not just American. And it'll also have short essays about them. Again, raising those questions, bringing up ideas. And again, back to the students. Yeah, I think that they responded to it. I think that they're interested in it. I think that... Um, Again, it's it's not all. It's just like what you said, though. It's it's the idea that you're not going to please everybody all the time. If you're not upsetting somebody, you probably aren't standing for any principles. Not all the students are going to jump on board, but there are students who want to understand, who are concerned, maybe to a level that that my generation isn't, that they're that concerned about what society is. And they're thinking about things in a global perspective, but I don't think we're doing the job we should and explain to them why the American experiment is so amazing, not why it's perfect, right. not why my party is correct and your party is wrong, right. but why it's amazing that we can sit down and we can argue with each other and then we can go to a free and open election and and choose you know who we want to put in place not that i think that jimmy Dore is right about a lot of things but i heard him say recently in a video on twitter that we're a nation of adult children of alcoholics uh as someone who is an ACOA, it breeds in you a strong aversion to conflict and i think growing up don't talk about politics don't talk about religion Uh, You know, I don't know if you remember Irving Baxter from out here in Richmond, who had a radio show that was like, you know, end times radio ministries. No, we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion. I'm going to talk about all of it. (laughs) Right. Uh, It's, I think, robbed us of the ability to cut. We we, we all want to be very sensitive to each other. And I think that's really, really important to just be thoughtful of other people. Absolutely. But mindfulness, mindfulness. But I think the other aspect of being in a COA is that it often robs you of your central core, your spine, because you're trying to please an attachment figure. And we are so politically trying to please uh well everybody and nobody we are so concerned yeah the eggshells are multicolored, various and at varying thicknesses and you have no idea where they are and where every righty screaming cancel culture they're ready not to buy a bud light and there's an analog on the left and absolutely you just sort of go really you're you're being bold and you know you're making bold stances but like it's performative Right. On, on right. all these different sides. Absolutely. Si- it's performed. That's what. Right. So social media, best way I've ever heard it described is it's a version of uh, performance art. Yes. Somewhere between who you want to be and who you are. Yeah. And um, yeah, you can respond with outrage and vitriol uh, is a word that I heard recently for some reason. But yeah, you can spew that everywhere rather than saying, OK, let's think about what Bud Light, what's Budweiser doing 
And yeah, they can do that if they want. And if I don't want to, I can just make a choice. But it's such outrage and there's such um, an emotional response in this instance from a side that would say that you're not supposed to be emotional. You're not supposed to cancel people. Facts don't care about. Yeah. Right. I, I know. I look at that and I go, look, they printed one can. And they wanted to put it into the feed of that person's, Dylan Mulvaney's feed, to appear to that silo of people that they actually do want them to drink their beer. And they sure. do, right? Well, they want everybody to drink their beer. If you really sit and think critically about their strategy, you go, okay, we, we are seen as a college bro, right-wing beer, let's... But then you look at it and, you know, you also go, how incredibly dumb... And how damaging. And I think that is the moment. Uh, Glenn Beck actually offered to buy that can from Dylan Mulvaney uh, <laughs> because he thinks it's, he said it was like a key critical moment. And I, I do think so. Like I, I was at CPAC in 2003 and the conversation back then was, why don't we boycott? Why don't we have the power that the left has to make our cultural impetus felt? Right. We need to develop our own squads of goons, which is how Ben Shapiro got his start for Breitbart, developing some of these tactics. Yep. Um, you know, and and you look at it and you go, this is a real moment where I think the right wing has developed a, a piece of political and cultural power that they've sought after for a while uh, and can make themselves felt where the MLB will take down their pride picture in a day. And you go, all right, well maybe that's good maybe that's bad it is what it is it's just we're now living in a reality that is a little bit more like 1800 than maybe it was post-war 1960s consensus where everybody kind of there's a standard that everybody aspires to and achieves to and it gets a little bit hairier so i think my point in all this is just that um you know as we end here my final question or comment to you is you know all of human history has been the Wild West. It has right. not been post-war, you know, let alone post-Cold War American consensus in the world that I grew up, which is why I think this all feels so stressful to people my age, because we never knew anything but a world where the Soviet Union didn't exist and the Americans vanquished everyone. And, you know, if a war is getting started, it's because Bush lied us into it, right? Like, <laughs> uh, and... We had kind of like the peak of the 90s where the only thing you had to worry about was who was cutting off what and what was who was what skater was hitting somebody with a crowbar, right? Like kind of tabloid lifestyles that was superfluous. Now we're living like the rest of the world for all of human history has lived with strong contentions amongst the people around us, right? right. Like clan rule. And I don't mean with a K, I mean like. Absolutely. Yes, tribal politics. And I think that makes a lot of people my age specifically, around 40 or, you know, 30, 30 to 40, kind of feel a lot of anxiety. Um, and that's where I think kind of diving into some of these works and getting comfortable with the great conversations, as Mortimer Adler called it, can really ease some of this anxiety. Oh, I think you're right. I think that's a good place to look for um, some solace. But not just uh, the passive kind. Also, with um, n not to not to use the um, the combative, but to arm yourself with knowledge, with information, with understanding, with yeah, uh, 
we've been in conflict for thousands of years as as a world and um yeah we're dealing with conflict now that seems more fractured and feels more um sharded than uh we've ever felt i i I feel that too i feel like it's worse than it has been but i would still point to um it's happening in a society where we can engage with these ideas. We're not being, um, you know, corralled into one thing or another. We're not going from one dictator to another. Uh, we're still operating, um, in a Republic in in a, a wonderful way. And we need to, as much as possible, we need to take ownership of that by being involved, being invested, taking a few minutes more, every week to read a little bit more to have one more conversation with your kids about it to ask your coworker, you know on the way to your car in the parking garage hey who's that author that you mentioned i'm kind of curious and to, to have more conversation and don't just get good at arguing your side and your beliefs learn their beliefs and try to out argue them from their point of view and you will be amazed the biggest blessing in my life is the pat down large swaths of progressive people, um, different cultures, access to just people that are not white Christian Midwestern conservatives who are straight. Like it's, it's not fundamentally changed my beliefs, but it has fundamentally changed how I uh, may think about certain things, talk about certain things, appreciate different perspectives it's a huge blessing to have that intellectual diversity and have friends of different types. Absolutely. You know, I th- of, yeah. of different intellectual creeds, religions, races, colors, whatever, right? Yep. Um, to learn other people's experiences and kind of break out of that Plainfield, Indiana, Christian conservative, we're just going to read the Constitution and uh, yay, raw. And that, everything's going to be okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's... Uh, it's not only a good thing, it's a, it's an important thing and it's, it's not easy to do. I'm a Midwest boy myself. And where do you find that? Who can you talk to? Um, how can you get outside of your comfort zone to find people to discuss who are willing to discuss it? And that's gotta be uh, a blessing in its own right that, that you can have a conversation with them and they know full well what you embody and what you look like and who they think you represent. And, that's uh, that's something we all need to seek. All right, Chris, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Chris. Anytime, I appreciate it. Happy Anything to you want to self promote? I don't know if there's. Uh... I I don't think that there is at the at okay. this point. Thank you. Got a Twitter or anything? Uh, nothing. No, I don't do anything actively right. on social media. Sorry, right. we'll we'll get you on there. All we'll right. get you out to the public. I guess. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. I'm going to have a little bit of post show for, uh, those who are in the Patreon, check out the bonus. I'm going to go to a hotel in Dayton after this and I'll record that and give you some extra thoughts on this interview. Say all the things about Chris that I can't say to his face. Uh, so make sure you check that out on the Patreon. Just send me a copy of it. All right. Okay. Yeah. No, you're way too big. I'm not going to let you hit me. All right. Thanks so much for joining me here on the Chris Spangle show. We appreciate it. If you learned something, if you appreciate it, the best thing you can do is share it with your friends. Thanks so much. We'll see you again soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.